The America's National Parks Podcast is brought to you by L.L. Bean. L.L. Bean is a proud partner of the National Park Foundation, and you can help them support the parks by shopping their limited edition National Park Collection. Every time you purchase products from the National Park Collection, which includes totes, shirts, hats, patches, and more, you're helping to protect, restore, and improve parks throughout the U.S. Search National Park Collection at LLBean.com and be an outsider with L.L. Bean. Much of the western United States was once blanketed in hundreds of feet of sand. The unforgiving sun beat down on the landscape for 20 to 30 million years during the early Jurassic period. Thin layers of rock allowed water to collect even in the dry desert, though sometimes it was hidden a few inches below the surface. Dinosaurs and other animals were able to survive the harsh conditions, and as the sand slowly turned to sandstone, traces of these animals were caught and preserved in the rock, creating fossils. More than 150 million years later, a man named Earl Douglas was born in Medford, Minnesota in 1862. He didn't know it yet, but his fate was already entwined with the dinosaurs that once roamed the earth. This week on America's National Parks, Earl Douglas and Dinosaur National Monument. Early in his childhood, Earl Douglas loved geology and other sciences. The passion stayed with him as he grew older. He began to dive into fossil collections in his 30s. He spent a few years teaching at schools in Minnesota, South Dakota, and Montana before going on to earn his bachelor's degree, then master's degree, in 1902. That year, he began work on his Ph.D. and joined the paleontology department at the Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The Carnegie Museum of Natural History opened in 1895 and is one legacy of Andrew Carnegie, the philanthropist who gained enormous wealth from the steel industry in Pittsburgh. Carnegie hoped that anyone, regardless of their financial background, would be able to see nature's wonders up close. The museum opened with artifacts from ancient Egypt, gorgeous minerals, wildlife, taxidermy, and dinosaurs. Botanists, entomologists, zoologists, and paleontologists all worked for Carnegie. And as the museum grew, they traveled around the world to search for exciting and new discoveries to bring back to Pittsburgh. Carnegie had an especially strong interest in evolution and dinosaurs, and in 1909, the museum sent Earl Douglas to Utah to search for dinosaur fossils along the Duchesne River. After only two weeks, the director of the Carnegie Museum, W.J. Holland, sent Douglas a letter telling him to dig up dinosaur bones east of Vernal. The previous year, Holland and Douglas had discovered a dinosaur femur while passing through the same area. It was too heavy to move at the time, but Holland felt that it was a hopeful region to continue searching. Douglas, however, was not convinced. On his first day, he realized that someone else had taken the exposed bones from the year before. His diary entries lamented that after beginning his search, he had only found fragments and pieces of bones. He was understandably discouraged. Soon after, he moved to a new search area with the thick, hard sandstone beds. 
There, in the open, he saw eight tailbones of an apatosaurus lying in exact position in the rock. He wrote in his diary, It was a beautiful sight. As he began to excavate the tailbones, he found bones from other dinosaurs mixed in with the skeleton. Soon after his discovery, local townspeople began to travel to see the dinosaur where Douglas was working. Five days after finding the skeleton, Douglas wrote in his journal, Today, two loads of people came from Vernal to see the dinosaur, and there were several loads from other places. For a time, the rocks that never had the impress of a woman's foot, and seldom that of a man's, swarmed with people of all ages. Mothers and grandmothers ascended the steep, almost dangerous slopes with babies, and there were men and women well along in years. A week later, Douglas again mentioned in his journal the droves of people that came from Vernal. He strengthened the bones with plaster and paste to protect the bones while in the hands of visitors. But local rodents liked to eat the paste off the bones in the evenings. Eventually, fewer visitors made the trek to the dinosaur site. The dinosaur discovery became known as the Carnegie Quarry. There were so many skeletons, Douglas's summer-long expedition became a permanent position out west. His wife Pearl and one-year-old son moved out to Utah in September 1909 while he worked. The first bones Douglas discovered were the most completed apatosaurus skeleton ever found. It took multiple years for the entire skeleton to be carefully extracted, packaged, and shipped to Pittsburgh on a train. It was finally mounted in the Dinosaur Hall of Carnegie Museum in 1915 and can still be seen on display today. That same year, the quarry was protected through the establishment of Dinosaur National Monument. At the time, it was just 80 acres. The monument was expanded from its original size in 1938, those 80 acres, to more than 326 square miles to protect the Green and Yampa River canyons. Today, the monument is just over 329 square miles. For 13 years after the initial discovery, the Carnegie Museum continued to fund excavations in Utah. Douglas managed the work at the quarry, unearthing more dinosaur bones and shipping them east to the museum. Between 1909 and 1922, more than 700,000 tons of material were sent to Pennsylvania from Utah. Eventually, the museum relinquished the claim on the quarry, deciding it had enough dinosaur skeletons. By this time, the Douglas family had been living at a nearby ranch since 1909. Douglas continued to work at the quarry and for the Carnegie Museum, also partnering with the National Smithsonian Museum and the University of Utah to help them find their own dinosaur bones. In 1924, he resigned from the museum and spent two years helping prepare fossils for display at the University of Utah. Throughout his life, Douglas was constantly writing. He published articles and wrote poetry, stories, essays, scientific field notes, and personal daily diaries. He collected maps and photographs and small scraps of paper with philosophical ponderings. These collections were used by his son to write a biography titled Speak to the Earth and It Will Teach You, The Life and Times of Earl Douglas. Earl Douglas passed away in 1931, but the beautiful sight he'd seen 22 years earlier ended up being one of the richest Jurassic-era quarries ever discovered. 
Though Douglas set out to study animals that lived in the area millions of years ago, people have also lived in the Dinosaur National Monument area for a long time. The Fremont people lived here around a thousand years ago. We can learn about their culture through the evidence they left behind, petroglyphs and pictographs. A petroglyph is an image that's carved or scratched in stone. A pictograph is a painting on a stone, usually done with natural pigments. Pictographs are often found in caves where they would have been protected from the natural elements. The lifestyle of the Fremont people depended on their environment. They lived in small bands or family groups, but didn't build large permanent dwellings, meaning they probably moved depending on water and food availability. They mostly relied on native plant foods such as berries, nuts, and cactus fruits, as well as wild game that include mule deer, bighorn sheep, small mammals, and birds. Many also grew crops to supplement their diet, such as corn, beans, and squash. They even used irrigation techniques that allowed them to settle in one place for longer, as evidenced by the time it would have taken to create rock designs for irrigation. Archaeologists have traced the Fremont culture along the Fremont River in south-central Utah and through most of the Green and Colorado River drainages. In Dinosaur National Monument, there is archaeological evidence that the Fremont people lived in the area from around 200 AD to 1300 AD. Archaeologists don't know what happened to the Fremont culture after that. It's possible their lifestyle shifted due to the influence of nearby cultures or climate factors such as drought and disappearing natural resources. Today, visitors can easily explore the Fremont petroglyphs and pictographs in the monument, offering a small window into their ancient culture. Fossilization is an extremely slow process. Over the 20 to 30 million years that the desert existed in the western U.S., it created a rock layer that was only 600 feet thick. Imagine you had 20 million years to stack paper 600 feet high. To do so, you'd only have to lay down a single piece of paper every 10 years. Because of how slowly the sand turned to rock, it was even more challenging for plant and animal remains to be buried and turn into fossils. For a plant to become a fossil, it needs to be buried quickly, otherwise the sun, sand, and wind can destroy the plant before it has a chance to be fossilized. This is one reason plant fossils are so challenging to find in Dinosaur National Monument. There are two types of plants that have been found fossilized within the park, cycads, which look like small scrubby palm trees, and horsetail, which usually grow in wetter habitats. You may even see horsetail near your own home, known as living fossils. This is one type of plant that has hardly changed since the time of the dinosaurs. Besides dinosaurs, paleontologists also discovered footprints of large scorpions and tiny freshwater snails. Throughout the park, there are limestone mounds that would have formed from springs, and because these little snails discovered were freshwater snails, we know that some of the wet areas in between the sand dunes were fed by freshwater springs. Once bones are removed from the earth, they don't last forever. One popular carnivorous skull that was on display in the park was removed in 2019 to repair and stabilize the bone structure. Stress fractures were formed along the lower jaws because of the way the skull was being displayed. Dinosaur National Monument and Petrified Forest National Park partnered to conserve the rare complete skull. The museum curator from Petrified Forest helped stabilize the skull's structure by strengthening the steel mount that held it 
and fitting the bone with a form-fitting epoxy cradle to support the pallet from below. The skull has been replaced in its original display for visitors to enjoy. There are many ways to enjoy Dinosaur National Monument. A number of roads intersect the wilderness, though make sure to check which ones are paved and which ones require a 4x4 off-road vehicle. There are six front country campgrounds, or for the more rugged adventurer, there's backcountry camping along the Green and Yampa Rivers. River rafting is a great way to gain a new perspective in the park. Visitors can head out on a raft for a single day or up to six. There are also plenty of trails to explore the desert. And off-trail hiking is allowed in the wilderness to access some of the most remote terrain in the park. If you do head off-trail, be sure you have the skills and the equipment to do it safely. The park straddles the Colorado and Utah border, and there are major sections on either side. The Quarry Exhibit Hall on the Utah side is the best place you can see fossils up close. There are around 1,500 dinosaur bones along the wall and exhibits that illustrate the story of these powerful animals. There are even fossils you can touch that are 149 million years old, all set within the giant rock wall where they were originally found. Paleontologists in the park are working to stabilize the wall so visitors will be able to visit it for generations to come. This episode of America's National Parks was hosted by me, Jason Epperson, narrated by Abigail Trebu, and written by Lindsay Taylor, whose blog, The Curiosity Chronicles, can be found on the webpage for this episode. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search National Park Podcast. You can also join our America's National Parks Facebook group, now 80,000 members strong. For more great American destinations, give us a listen at the Sea America Podcast. And if you're interested in RV travel, find us at the RV Miles Podcast. You can also follow Abigail and me as we travel the country with our three boys, all over social media as Our Wandering Family. Today's show was sponsored by L.L. Bean. Follow the hashtag BeAnOutsider and visit LLBean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks. Music